Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We're down to the last uh, three sermons. We spent a whole lot of time uh, in the armor of God. Uh, the last uh, six, seven verses we've been going through. And part of the reason for that is nowhere else in the Scripture does uh, do we see such uh, precision and information about our battle against the enemy. And so uh, it's helpful to slow down and, and, and think through all aspects of the armor of God. So let's uh, read verses 10 through 17. We'll focus in on 17 this morning. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Father, would you open uh, these words that are from you, uh, written uh, to the church in Ephesus and to us today. Father, would you uh, apply this to our hearts, that it would bring about lasting change that we would be conformed into Christ's image. We pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to be, begin by asking this question. Uh, how confident would you be in winning a sword fight? All right, I see a lot of six, seven-year-olds looking up with uh, confidence here. I've seen you guys with your swords, and you guys are skilled sword fighters. Uh, today we're going to be talking about wielding the sword of the Spirit with skill and with accuracy. Being able to wield uh, this uh, sword. As uh, you see in your notes, the main charge of the message is this. Fight the enemy by trusting in and proclaiming the Word of God. And then we have uh, three charges. To wield the sword against the lies of the world, against the lies of the devil, and against the lies of the flesh. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning so as we look at verse 17 and consider 
all that we've already been through. We've already been called to fasten on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, to be made ready by the gospel of peace, which is illustrated in shoes that make a soldier ready for battle, and to hold up the shield of faith, which can extinguish all uh, the darts of the enemy. And as we've looked at all this, what we realize is that we are called to put on Jesus Christ. Christ is the center of the armor of God. This is the conclusion to uh, this letter to the Ephesians, which has Christ central in how he defeats our enemies and defeats our sin and ultimately defeats death and gives us new life. And in that new life, he gives us new spiritual weapons which are not of the flesh. And so as we consider now the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, uh, let's notice the uniqueness of this part of the armor. Uh, first, uh, we notice that the sword is by far the most offensive part of the armor. When we think of armor, we think of defense. Uh, we, we think of being able to, uh, with the shield of faith, extinguish uh, the flaming darts of the enemy. And now we get to this offensive weapon, which we'll think about in a moment, is also defensive. You've seen in this sword fight, you not only strike, but you block. We see a different aspect that Paul wants to highlight. Here's what John Stott says of the sword. He says, of all the six pieces of armor or weaponry listed, the sword is the only one which can be clearly used for attack as well as defense. Close personal encounters. For the word used for sword is makara. It's, it's not a big sword like we see in the movies, right? We, we see these big, long swords that you might even be able to uh, lop someone's head off from six feet away. But this particular sword, which is being described, uh, is more like this. Uh, the longest ones talked about with this Greek word would be like 18 inches. It'd be more like this one, all the way down to six inches. So you think of like a dagger that you can uh, have in your belt. You can maybe even hide it. But the idea is this sort of sword is for close, intimate battle. It's going to take precision and skill to be able to wield the sword. To get behind the shield, you think of a Christian, as soon as they're saved, they have at least some faith. And so they can crawl behind a shield. But to use a little sword in close hand-to-hand -hand combat, 
that's going to require skill. When we think of what the purpose of a sword fundamentally is, it's to kill one's enemies. It's to destroy uh, the enemy. It's obviously not not a physical weapon that Paul is referring to, but it's an illustration for a spiritual weapon. Paul gives us this idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 3. Here's what he speaks to Christians. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, you're physical, I'm physical, right? We walk in the flesh. We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now this gets exciting (laughs) when you think about it. So yes, we're of the flesh, but we're also spiritual beings living in a spiritual world. And Paul's been describing spiritual enemies that want to destroy us And we're told that as Christians, we don't fight according to the flesh, but according to uh, weapons that have divine power to destroy strongholds. And then he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey God. Christ. So our weapons as Christians is fundamentally the Word of God and prayer. That's the weapons that we fight with. And I like how he says the enemy in in 2 Corinthians here comes with opinions, not with truth. But as Christians, we're given an incredible weapon in the Word of God, not to win physical battles, but spiritual battles. Notice it says, the sword is the sword of the Spirit and is identified as the Word of God. So think about this. The Spirit gives the believer this sword first and fundamentally in inspiration. Where did we get the Bible from? Well, human authors wrote down the Scripture. Human agents wrote down the Scripture, but not of their own accord, but by inspiration. Listen to 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's the sword of the Spirit in the sense that we don't have the Scripture. We don't have the Word of God unless the Spirit of God gives it to us. 
and the Spirit of God gives it to us, God's words through human authors as they're carried along uh, by the Spirit of God so that we get the, the, the perfect, infallible, and authoritative uh, Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God. That word breathe there uh, has this uh, it, uh, word pneuma, which refers to the Spirit. All Scripture is breathed out of God's own mouth and profitable for teacher teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So it's the sword of the Spirit in the sense that the Spirit gives it to us through inspiration, but He also gives it to us through enlightenment. For if God wanted to give His Word to us, and though it be perfect, it would do us no good unless the Spirit brought about new spiritual eyes to understand and apply the Scripture. So the Spirit gives us the sword in both inspiration and enlightenment. Listen to John 4.26. Uh, 14.26, this is Jesus speaking. Uh, and He's referring to the fact that He's going to die and He's going to leave them, but not without the Helper. He says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, from whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So it's the Spirit that ultimately is the teacher, the resident teacher that God gifts every believer that lives inside them, that helps us understand this Word that God has given us uh, in the Scripture. Um, John uh, 14, 17, a few verses before that, it says, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. In 1 Corinthians 2, we maybe get the clearest picture where Paul just basically says, you can't understand the things of God unless the spirit of God uh, opens your eyes to understand and see it. Um, in, in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 2, he says, But we impart, the apostles impart, a secret and hidden wisdom of God. And then in verse 10, he says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And in verse 12, he says, Now we've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. See, God can freely give us His Word, but if He doesn't give us the understanding, spiritual understanding of the Word, just like many really smart people, people much smarter than you and I, intellectually, that have looked at the Word of God, have read it, and basically said, interesting. Set it aside. It doesn't affect their life. What's the difference? They haven't understand, understood how God is a personal God 
that they stand under the just wrath of God in light of their sin, and they haven't understood the love of God in which He sends His Son to stand uh, between them and God and bear His wrath for their sins, because if they understood that spiritually, they couldn't just be done with Him. They couldn't just say, interesting. But if you understand that and you know that, it's because the Spirit of God has given you sight. He's given you understanding. And so when we read it's the sword of the Spirit, isn't it comforting that the power is not in, in, in our own flesh and physical things? Like if I really have to do all my battle with this, and it's my power and my skill, I'm in trouble. By the way, I don't want to get sidetracked. So when I was in Africa, here's how I got this. They use these in the rice fields, but we walked by this guy that had a big heap of trash, what it looked like, pile of metal, broken motorcycles and bicycles and all sorts of stuff, hubcaps, and... (laughs) This guy uh, oh, was a blacksmith. I, I said, what's this guy doing? What's his occupation? And, and so Mark talked to him, and he said, we'll come back in an hour. I told him to make you something. So out of that trash heap, he made this uh, sword in, a, in about an hour. So, But thank goodness that I don't have to fight spiritual enemies, the devil and his demons, in my own strength, in my own power, with my own armor. So when we think about what a sword is used for to destroy an enemy, and you think about who usually wins a battle, it's whoever has the best weapon and knows how to wield it. That's who usually wins a battle. And so when we think of our enemy that Paul has been putting before us that, that, that he brings to our attention in Ephesians 2, uh, namely the devil and his world and the sons of disobedience, which his spirit is manipulating, and then ultimately even our flesh. The devil's uh, way of getting at us, his foothold is in our sinful flesh. And so in order to win a battle, we need a superior weapon. What's the devil's fundamental weapon? His lies, right? He's a deceiver. He's a liar. That's his native language. And so the way you defeat lies is with the sword of the Spirit. You defeat it with the Word of God. And so the three categories that we're going to think about this battle are the ones Paul gives us in chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, look at this. It's a good way to summarize your enemies. Here's what he says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Your first enemy that Paul points to 
is the course of this world, the way of this world is against you. So your first enemy you might think of from this passage is the world. But then it says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So when we look up, we just see air. But if we could cease with spiritual eyes, we would see that spirits, angels and demons are everywhere. That what we see is physical. There's a spiritual world all around us. And the prince of the power of the air, the one that, if you can think of it, is uh, playing the tune for the world to march to, is the devil. He's at work in every unbeliever. That's what your Bible says. People are not neutral. They're born fallen. They're born in sin following the prince of the power there. And this text says you once were marching along to that same deceptive song. So the world is our enemy. The devil is our enemy. Verse 3 says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So your third enemy is the flesh. Satan's lies are going to come through the world system. It's always speaking to you. Is the world not always speaking to us? And it's fundamentally deceiving and lying to us. Because Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And we have an enemy, though, within. Within our own flesh. The writer of Hebrews describes it as sin which clings so closely. And so his lies are fought in those different areas. They function in different ways, and yet we're given the proper armor to uh, survive and to defeat the enemy. So let's consider our sword for a minute. It's described as the Word of God. A Scottish pastor named Thomas Guthrie said this, the Bible is an armory of heavenly weapons a laboratory of infallible medicines, a mine of exhaustless wealth. It's a guidebook for every road, a chart for every sea, a medicine for every malady, a balm for every wound. Rob us of our Bible and our sky has lost its sun. This is his attempt at helping us understand how valuable the Word of God is to us. This Word is inerrant. This sword we're given is perfect. It's infallible. It contains no errors and no mistakes. Listen to Psalm 19.7 speaking of the Word. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Let me ask you a question. Does your soul need reviving? The law of the, uh, of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's practical. You run into a person in a fallen world, and they'll admit that their soul needs reviving. And if they don't admit it, it's because they're blind. It's because they have no perception of reality. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It's perfect and it's sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. You need wisdom. You need rejoicing in your spirit, in your heart. Where are you going to get that? the Word of God. And then it says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The testimony of Scripture, we could go on and on. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says this, every word of God proves true. It is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. Every word of God proves true. Don't add to it. Don't twist it. Don't become a liar. But take refuge in it. Now it's interesting. The, the Greek word where it says, which this is the word of God, you might think is the word logos, but it's not. Logos is the term that's often, most often used for the Word. And, and it's kind of in this holistic, more general sense. But the word he uses is rima, which puts emphasis on every individual specific word or specific teaching. And so we talked about a, a close combat with the sword. What he's saying is, is as Christians, we don't just generally know the Word of God, but we're called to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the specific, intimate words in specific circumstances. Um, I think it's helpful. Uh, I think John MacArthur is helpful here. This is somewhat of a lengthy quote, but as I tried to put it in my own words, I thought I'll just give it to you in his because uh, it's helpful. Here's what he says. Um, he helps us consider the precision of this sword. He said, unlike the shield, however, which gives broad general protection, the sword can deflect and attack only if it is handled precisely and skillfully. It must parry the enemy weapon exactly where the thrust is made. What he's saying is when the thrust comes like this, the defense needs to be right on point, right when it comes. And then he says, um, his defense for each temp or he says, when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, his defense for each temptation was a passage of Scripture that precisely 
contradicted the devil's word. The Christian who does not know God's word well cannot use it well. Satan will invariably find out where we are ignorant or confused and attack us there. Scripture is not a broad sword, which would be a different Greek word, romphia, to be waved indiscriminately, but a dagger to be used with great precision. Christians who rely simply on their experience of salvation and their feelings to get them through are vulnerable to every sort of spiritual danger. They get into countless compromising situations and fall prey to innumerable false ideas and practices simply because they are ignorant of the specific teachings of the Scripture. And then he goes on and says this, no believer has excuse for not knowing and understanding God's Word. Every believer has God's own spirit within him as his own divine teacher of God's divine word. Our only task is to submit to his instruction by studying the word with sincerity and commitment. We cannot plead ignorance or inability, only disinterest and neglect. He's saying, if you don't know how to wield the word of God well, you can't claim ignorance or inability especially in America, for those who can read and have access to information. And then he speaks of, of, of Christians that don't wield it well. He says, some Christians, like that butterfly, flit from Bible study to Bible study, from sermon to sermon, from commentary to commentary, while gaining little little more than a nice feeling and some good ideas. Others, like the botanist, the, the scientist who studies plants, study Scripture uh, carefully and take copious notes. They gain much information, but little truth. Others, like the bee, go into the Bible to be taught by God and grow in knowledge of Him. Also, like the bee, they never go away empty. So there he describes three different types of Christians. One who listens to sermon, to sermon, to sermon, maybe even reads some commentaries, gets some good truths and, and, and feels a little better about themselves. And then there's others who take copious notes. They're always learning, but never really understanding. It never gets down to their heart but he uses the bee as an illustration that goes and climbs into a flower and stays there for a long time and leaves nourished and, and full. And so the very word that Paul chooses to use uh, describing this sword requires us not just to understand general truths of the Scripture, but to understand it so that we can wield the sword precisely. All right, so let's uh, consider wielding uh, the sword against the lies of the world. Let's just look at three different areas in which we're going to have to fight Satan's lies. Uh, the first one is, uh, is against the world. Do you know that the world really does hate you, Christians? 
the world really does hate you. At least that's what the scripture tells us. Listen to what John says in 1 John 3.11. He says, For this is the message that you've heard from me, or heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. All right? So what's the illustration John gives there? He's saying, why did Cain kill Abel? It wasn't that Abel did something against Cain. It was that Abel exposed by Abel's own righteousness, Cain's sin, and he didn't want to see that. And the world does not want to see light when it's reveling in the darkness. When the world wants its own selfish, prideful ways, and a Christian shines light on that, it, the world really does hate you. The world really is designed to be an attack against all that is true. That, that, that points to the truthfulness of God. Someone might say, well, I don't believe that. That's, a little, that's painting with too broad a stroke. Well, what does he mean in Ephesians 2? When he describes the course of this world, when he describes Satan as the one who is uh, um, influencing every unbeliever, uh, uh, do you even know that the biblical authors uh, like John, do you even know what they have in mind when they refer to the world? What are we to think when we say, okay, the world hates us, the world's against us, lies are going to come through the world. What is the world? Here's how John described it in 1 John 2.15. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world See, when I, when I used to read this, I used to think, wait a minute, God created the mountain. Aren't I supposed to enjoy the mountain? And here John is saying, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, he's not talking about just God's creation in general, but he gives us three specific aspects of the world. When he's talking about the world, here's how he describes the world then. He says, for all that is in the world, this is verse 16 of 1 John 2, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The lust of the flesh, or desires, the ESV says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, that would be envy, the lust of the flesh is like our appetites, unhinged appetites that aren't in submission of God to glorify Him with them. So addictions are the lust of the flesh. These could be food addictions. This could be drugs and alcohol. This could be sexual addictions. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, that's envy. I want more. I want this. I want that. Coveting. 
And then the pride of life. I want status. I want to matter. John says, that's the world. If that's what you're all about, have you ever known the love of the Father? That's what he's referring to. So when we think of the world that's against us, when you think of what it... You think the commercials are actually trying to engage your intellect? Right? They're not putting arguments up on the screen. They're trying to make you hungry or thirsty or covet something. All right? To illustrate uh, our battle, wielding the sword well, uh, I want to show you Proverbs 4, uh, beginning in verse 10. Now, Proverbs 4 is Solomon writing to his sons. And all throughout this proverb, he's telling them to keep the commandments, to remember my words, to not let go of them, over and over and over again. 29 times in Proverbs He's telling his sons to essentially wield the sword. But in verses 10 through 23, the, Solomon says, look at me, I'm your father, I love you. Someone else is going to give you words. Someone else is going to try to deceive you. And, and we see the picture here. He says, hear my son, hear my son, accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I've led you in paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step, your step will not be hampered. If you run, you'll not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Instruction. Wisdom from the Father is your life. He, his point is, he's saying, I, the one who loves you, has given you instruction. But then he, in verse 14, it changes. He says, do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Don't go on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they've done wrong. Who's they? It's the wicked. It's these other people. The father's speaking to his son. And then other people are going to be speaking to his sons. He says, for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. I love that picture. He says, he says if you listen to my words, if you listen to the scripture, it's going to be like when the sun comes up in the morning. We don't know this. Nobody walks around in the middle of the night in the dark. But they would have to travel sometimes in the dark and you would stumble all night long. And then finally, the sun would start to come up and it would get brighter and brighter and brighter. And then you could quit stubbing your toe into that rock or tripping over that branch. It's a, it's a very vivid image. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. The one thing's a guarantee in this world. You look at all your lost neighbors, all your lost family members. They're stumbling. 
They probably even admit they're stumbling. That's why they're trying to make their life better with, you know, a new boyfriend or a new uh, job or a new this or a new circumstance that seems better. None of that is ultimately going to settle the soul, right? The unbelievers are stumbling in the darkness and they don't know what they're stumbling over. They don't know how to change it. But then he says this, my son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart for they are folly to those who find them in healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flows the springs of life. Essentially, Solomon's saying, sons, grab the word of God. Never put it down. This is protection over your life. Uh, oh, man. I was going to give you an awesome illustration from how Martin Luther, once, once he understood the word of God, once he was saved, essentially, as, at least for a time, he stood as one man against the whole papacy 12 centuries of lies in human tradition that have built up. One man stood firm, and you say, how could they do that? How, how can you stand against all that tradition all those years? How could he have confidence to do it? Well, it's because he finally had the Word of God. He became an expositor. You had to show it to him in the Word. How powerful is this weapon to stand against the lies of the world? We have many illustrations that we could look at. Second, wield the sword uh, against the lies of the devil. We don't have time to look at this, but you know it. When Satan was uh, tempted Jesus in the wilderness, how did he do it? How, 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 did, how, did, how did Christ win? He could have said, you know, you know, Satan came saying, if you are the Son of God, then turn this stone into bread. He could have said, I am the Son of God. I created you, Satan. But that's not the weapon he pulled. He pulled Scripture every time. It is written, man shall not li live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He quotes Scripture. He grabs the sword. He defeats the lie. A specific lie comes. A specific scripture blocks that. And he wins. Same when he says, worship me and I'll give you all this. And he says, you're supposed to worship the Lord God alone. He quotes scripture. Throw yourself down. The angels will catch you. He says, don't test God with scripture. Are you ready to fight Satan's attacks? Because they don't always come just through your TV. They'll come in your head at two in the morning. Lies will come into your head. Are you ready for battle? And finally, this sword helps us fight against the, our own flesh. 
You see, to wield the sword of the Spirit, one must yield themselves under the authority of the Spirit. Let me say that again. You might think as a Christian, well, I just get to pick this thing up and I do whatever I want with it. No, what it means to pick it up is to say, whatever I read in that word, I need to get under it. That's the authority for my life. Let me tell you something. If one of your enemies is within this sin which clings so closely, that sharp two-edged sword hurts because it's not always pointed out there. It points inward, right? Paul says that one of our enemies is our own flesh, our own remaining sin. So in Hebrews 4.11, when it says, let us strive to seek or seek to enter that rest so no one may uh, fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. So here's what the Word of God, it is so precise, it is so sharp, it is, in, in one sense, it's, it's kind of like you have these robotic surgeries where they can go exactly where they want to go. The Word of God can get down and help the believer understand the thoughts and intentions of their heart. And that's not usually to throw a party at that point because it describes them as being naked and exposed before God. All of our sins come from motivations and desires, right? Right? If we're going to fight the enemy within and put to death sin in our life, then we need the Word of God to come in, not just give us good information so we can win arguments, but if in your Bible reading, you're not being laid bare and repenting and clinging to Christ for salvation, then I'm afraid you might just be like the botanist. Studies the Word, takes good notes. Because the Word of God is sharp for everyone. And if you put yourself under it and you let it cut in, then all your justifications, all your excuses begin to go away. But fear not. Though you be found naked, there's someone standing with clothes. Jesus Christ has perfect righteousness for the sinner. So we need to wield the sword within our own hearts. We need to get under the Word of God. We don't use the Word of God for our own arguments, for our own pride, and for our own glory. But the Word of God should always be humbling us at a heart level. So Christians, 2024 will be a barrage of attacks. It's guaranteed. That's the whole point of our text. For our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion. 
The world will not stop speaking lies to us. Our sin, which clings so closely, isn't all of the sudden going to give up. So what should you do? Don't ever rely on your own feelings to win the battle. Your feelings ebb and your feelings flow. Don't rely on your past experiences, for they also have ebbed and flowed, and you are fallible interpreters of your experiences. Experience can offer you something, but we don't even know how to interpret our spirit, our experiences infallibly uh, apart from the Word of God. But rather, let's take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It's a supernatural weapon to wield against the enemy. 2024, I mean, we're sitting here December 31st. In God's providence, we have this sermon. And we've been challenged to wield the Word precisely and accurately against the devil and his lies, against the world, to speak out the Word of God where we've been put, but also to wield it within. So, as you think back on 2023, are you proud of the way you grabbed on to this powerful weapon? Have you put on the armor of God well? Or do you want to commit to saying, I need God's Word in my life more? Well, there's resources to help you. We challenge you. You need God's Word more than you know you need God's Word. It's how you became a Christian. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. And let me end with this. Someone might say, well, all the other ones were put on Jesus Christ. How, is, how does John describe Christ? As the embodiment of the Word of God, right? We need to put on Jesus Christ 